Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. You got it! You better stop it! This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by Momentus. And the thing we want to talk about today is grass-fed whey protein. No, no, it's not that. It's my snack obsession. Tell us more. So I'm always chasing enough protein grams. I seem silly. Me too. But I just sometimes feel like I don't get enough protein grams. So right now, currently, I'm taking a little skier, little Icelandic yogurt. Skier. Skier. And then I throw in a scoop of protein. That's S-K-Y-R. Either the vanilla or the chocolate. Both are fantastic. So I either put it in a little coffee skier or a little vanilla skier, and I add an apple. And what happens, Lisa's loving the way I say skier, what happens is I get this delicious like chocolatey or vanilla-y protein bomb. And I'm like, wow, this is like dessert. Yeah. It is so good. You really and do I, eat I, it every single I, day. I eat it every single day. And I'm like, ate an apple, count towards the grams, and 35 more grams of protein. One of the things about this protein, look, I'm a child of the 90s. And like when I started lifting weights and we were like, protein, I like protein too. And the issue was not all proteins felt really good on my stomach. This protein has an incredible uh, enzyme for digestion called prohydrolase. Man, I feel great eating this. I don't get bloat. I don't feel sick. I love this protein. Yeah, and it mixes into stuff like oatmeal and yogurt um, in a way that makes it super yummy and palatable. Get those macros. It's so good. Head over to thereadystate.com slash momentous and use code TRS for 20% off your first purchase. Protein. This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by Sleep Me. I want to talk about your weighted blanket obsession. I am obsessed with my cooled weighted blanket Oh, yeah, by that, Sleep and Me. there's the difference. You know, and here's the deal. I've definitely had phases in my life where I struggle to fall asleep and stay asleep, um, mostly because I am ruminating in my own mind about things that probably are not important. You know what's great about that in our life is that you can ruminate and I can go to bed. Yeah, and you know, the weighted blanket you know, the problem with the traditional weighted blanket is that you're under the weighted blanket yeah, and then halfway through the night you have to cast it off because you're, you're literally 1,000 degrees. But the, That happened yeah, to me. Yeah, the beauty of the cooled weighted blanket by Sleep Me is that it keeps the weighted blanket cool so you can literally keep it on your body all night long. And it literally creates this like cocoon womb-like sleeping environment the right that is so awesome. Yeah. Look, thermal regulation is the next frontier in sleep, in sleep density and sleep quality. Don't mess around. And so if you need or something like a, a weighted blanket can help you sleep better, supercharge that thing and have it also help you to regulate your temperature. Huge fan of the weighted blanket. Head over to sleep.me slash TRS to learn more and save off the purchase of any new Cube, Uller, or Doc Pro sleep system. There is an offer available exclusively for the Ready State podcast listeners and only for a limited time. That's sleep.me slash TRS to take advantage of our exclusive discount and wake up refreshed every day under your weighted blanket. On this episode of the Ready State Podcast, we are thrilled to bring you the brain, the man, Lane Norton. Lane uh, is a big kind of part of our life in terms of understanding nutrition and the current state of nutrition, but it didn't always start that way. It started because Lane it was a self-proclaimed nerd who lifted heavy things, who went on to get a BS in biochemistry with honors from Eckert and a PhD in nutritional sciences with honors from uh, University of Illinois. He's an innovator in the fitness industry, to be sure. He helped popularize flexible dieting and an online nutrition coaching contest prep platform. From 2005 to 2018, he worked with over 1,700 clients and 500 competitors, by which is us saying that he works at the pointy end of the spear. He understands what it's like to actually work with people. Since moving away from online coaching, Lane is focused on writing books, 
He, he's got a ton, Fat Loss Forever, the Complete Contest Prep Guide, but more recently developing the Carbon Diet Coach, nutritional coaching app that created, and he creates certification courses through the Clean Health Institute. His passion is for helping others achieve their goals in education, and he and his wife, I should say his business partner, are busy humans. Yeah, I mean, this was such a fun conversation and we actually could do a part two because I think we only got through like 50% of the things we want to talk about. But, you know, what I so appreciate about Lane is the way that he's sort of made it his mission in life to kind of demystify uh, research, especially in the nutritional space and try to break it down for regular people um, so that people can kind of parse out like what is and is not actually correct information in this space. Yeah. And, you know, what you can see is as he has evolved and sort of become a, such a big anchor for understanding nutritional science as it relates to actual behavior change, is also really, I feel like, has been a, a voice in this movement away from where we made people fear food and really confused people about, well, what can I eat? And how do I manage this around changing my body composition and eating for performance, which are sort of radically different ideas? I think what's so hard these days with the, all the the chaos and fire hose of information on the internet is to sort of figure out like who can be actual trusted sources of quality information. And I know for us and everybody on the Ready State staff, like he is one of our trusted sources of like solid information in the internet sphere. Yeah. And, you know, again, something that really resonates with me that he has done with the Carbon Coach app is it's not always working with a person one-on-one -on -one is you can't beat that, right? But if you can scale 80% effectiveness. If we can begin a conversation with people knowing how to fuel themselves, knowing how to change their body composition in a really reasonable way and in a sustainable way, that is really the bones of revolution. Yeah. I mean, I think we had a really interesting and wide ranging conversation with him and I hope you guys all really enjoy it as much as we did. Hey, Ready State listeners, if you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Lane, welcome to the Ready State Podcast. We're honored and excited to chat you up today. Thanks for being here. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. I'm uh, excited to be here. Just for everyone knows, we are huge fans of your work and consume everything you put out. And I feel like it's such a rationalization or a nice balance between you're actually at the pointy end of the spear working with actual people, trying to either gain weight or lose weight or change body composition or, wait for it, perform, which are not always the same thing. You do such a good job of integrating complex nutritional science, slaying cows. We're such fans and such a big part of it that even some of our staff came in today so they could lurk in the background and listen to the podcast. So <laughs> welcome. We're, so, we're really excited to have you. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. We have so much to talk about, about what you're doing currently and nutrition and the health and fitness business at large. Business is um, the right word, right? But beforehand... You know, tell us a little bit about your background, both athletically and maybe educationally, because I think it's relevant. Yeah, great. I'm really trying to get my like elevator pitch of my life down because I'm, <laughs> I'm starting to do these things. And I realize when I'm like in the 12th minute, like, oh, they, they probably don't need this much information. Um, so we'll see how I do. But I got into lifting weights when I was a teenager because I got bullied a lot in school and didn't get any attention from girls. And lifting weights didn't solve either of those problems, but I fell, <laughs> I just fell in love with lifting weights. It was really the first thing that made me realize uh, and make the connection that, hey, you could not be good at something. And if you work really hard at it, you can actually improve. And it taught me about, you know, getting through setbacks and like perseverance and resilience and all those sorts of things. So it really been an incredibly valuable tool that I've leaned on my entire life to help me get through uh, harder problems as I got older. 
So really got into that. And when I got to college, I wanted to be a marine science major, but I was really getting into bodybuilding at the time. And I had a really great general chemistry professor who was like, yeah, you don't, you don't want to do marine science. You don't want to do biology. You want to do biochemistry. He's like, that's the human body, man. Like do biochemistry. And you can always go to grad school or you can, you know, go into the workforce. There'll be plenty of jobs available to you. Real quick, shout that person's name out because that is a turning point for all of us. Chris Schnabel. Chris Schnabel was his name. Excellent. You look back at the things that like caused you like that fork in your life or, you know, different choices you made that just, that's one of them that just completely changed the course of my life. And I, I will say I went to Eckerd College as an undergrad and I'm extremely grateful. I had really great professors uh, that just made a huge difference in my life. And he was certainly one of them. And so changed my major to biochemistry, got into competing in bodybuilding, uh, did my first show when I was 19. I won the team division and the novice division. And that was like it for me. I was hooked, competed all throughout undergrad and then graduate school, won my natural pro card when I was 24. This is 2006. I'm 40 now. <laughs> and uh, while I was in graduate school, I guess I should back up just a real quick. I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life uh, because at the time, circa 2003, when I was a junior in college, I started thinking about, well, what am I going to do after this whole thing? And I had started writing articles for bodybuilding.com and I had started writing for a few really, really small online magazines and basically doing it for free because I just enjoyed doing it. And I was like, well, I don't know what I want to do. And at the time, it was like, if you want to make a living in the fitness industry, your choices were basically become a personal trainer start a supplement line, start a gym, or, you know, go try to be Mr. Olympia. And none of those seemed really appealing to me because I don't make any ethical judgments about people who use steroids. It was just never something that I was personally interested in doing. And so the other three options didn't really look like great options to me either because I came from a pretty, you know, didn't have a lot of money growing up. So I didn't have a bunch of capital, you know, to go open a gym or any of these other things. So I was like, well, don't know what I want to do. I know I want to be in the fitness industry. So let's go to grad school and I'll delay the real world for, you know, four to five or six more years. So say it's we the all. Best, it's the best way to delay. It's great for that. So I figured I'd delay the real world by, you know, a few more years and maybe I'd figure out what to do during that time. And I started looking at different graduate school programs and didn't really know where I wanted to go. I knew I wanted to do something with protein metabolism and... Just at the time, PubMed had kind of just started. I literally, I'd gone to like a bunch of different uh, universities' websites trying to find an advisor who kind of aligned with my research goals. And after about, I don't know, 50 of those, I'm like, this is going to take forever. Uh, so I just typed in what I was interested in. And then I looked at who did the research. And then I just started emailing people. And the second guy emailed was a guy named Dr. Don Lehman. And again, talking about just, you could have zigged and you zagged. Just something that changed my life was having him as an advisor. He was an amazing advisor, one of the true pioneers in protein uh, research, and the University of Illinois was a fantastic school to go to. So I went there for six years, competed all the way through, and started coaching people in 2005. This is before everybody was, well, Instagram didn't exist, but this is before everybody on Instagram was an online coach. And just through sheer word of mouth, within like three years, I was making a full-time living doing it. So I was kind of like, oh, I guess when I graduate, I don't really have to get a real job. <laughs> and this was happening while you were at grad school. Yeah. So I was probably coaching like 70 people at a time by the time I was graduating uh, grad school. So did that. 
competed in pro bodybuilding, did pretty well there, was top five in all my shows and even managed to win a show. And funny enough, the year before I did my pro shows in bodybuilding, I did a couple powerlifting meets because I was like, ah, you know, I took I took four years off from when I won my pro card to when I did my first pro show because it just takes a long time to build muscle when you're drug free. And because, you know, if I'm doing this, I'm working and I'm in grad school full time, it's like trying to fit bodybuilding in and competing was pretty tough. So I was like, well, I still want to do something to keep myself engaged. So I'll try out like a powerlifting meet. And raw really wasn't a thing back when I first did it. This is like 2009, but did a few meets and didn't really think much of it. And then when I, after I did my first season in bodybuilding, I was like, well, I'll do some more powerlifting meets. And a guy named Mike Zordos, who's a professor at FAU, um, who did a lot of the current research on periodization, he was like, man, you really ought to try a USAPL meet. So I did a USAPL meet. And then again, one of these things that changes your life. I mean, I won my category, but didn't really think much of it. And then Matt Gary, who is the head U.S. coach, messaged me. He's like, by the way, you don't know this, but you would have won nationals with your total last year. <laughs> and you would have also finished in the top 10 in the world. And I was like, huh, okay, I guess I'll do nationals next year. So by that time, Raw had started to get pretty big. I think it was something like the first year U.S., Raw Nationals was like like 80 people, and the next year was like 150. And then in 2014, when I did it, it was 500 people. So I won that year, and then I won the next year. Went to IPF Worlds, got a silver medal there, set a what was at the time a world squat record. And yeah, it just ended up being better at powerlifting than I was at bodybuilding. So that was kind of my competitive. I've dealt with some injuries on and off, you know, after that time. And uh, more recently, have gotten back on the platform and actually qualified for IPF Masters Worlds, which I'll be uh, competing in in uh, early October. Feeling pretty good about that and, and very excited to get back on the platform on a big stage, uh, even if it is the old man's category. So I'm super pumped for that. It seems like you, uh, not to interrupt, but you suddenly have enough space in your life. Like your business is mature, family is a certain place. You're like, oh, maybe I can just have one extra hour a week of training. I mean, it really is. I think that's a sign of how healthy you're, you're, you're current, or you're just totally obsessed and you're going to destroy yourself. One of those two things, but I'm going to go with healthy. Yeah. I, you know, I think uh, training for me, like I tell people, even if you told me, hey, you could never ever gain another pound of strength, you could never add another ounce of lean body mass, I would still train because I just love to train. Even 23 years after I did my first squat, I'll still get like butterflies going in for a big squat session. You know, it's just something that's never left me. I really, really do have like that much passion for it. It's the best form of therapy I've ever had. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I think part of it is I am in a place now where some of my businesses have gotten to be a little bit more self-sustaining. We're still working on offloading me a little bit from those things. But if I couldn't train, you know, for two hours, you know, five days a week, I'd probably go insane. Or in our family, we say incarcerated, addicted to drugs, <laughs> stealing, like trying to do anything yeah. to, to get that rush. I'll tell people, I'm like, I'd probably be, it's possible I'd be in jail or dead if I didn't have <laughs> lifting weights just because. We feel coping. that way it's too. It's how we self-soothe. Yeah, yeah. It's our, it's, we feel that it's our coping mechanism. I want you to talk a little bit more about what your businesses are because they are consequential. What I would love to you just, if you could spend a second, even talking today about one, 
how did your nutrition grad research map up with being a real life tip of the spear pointing into the stick user? Because here you are helping people manage body composition because they have real goals around body composition, which is a side show from health and other things, but necessarily, not necessarily, but also you're trying to get stronger in grad school, which is also sometimes our nutrition doesn't, nutritional research. How did that impact sort of your thinking and what was happening during research? Because just for clarity, we opened the gym when I was a first year grad student in physio, and I could not have had the same physio experience if we didn't have to work with people in a real day. That is so important. I mean, I think what, you know, hardcore researchers do is super important, you know, to get into the nitty gritty and down in the weeds and answer those very specific questions. But if you go talk to a lot of them, they have really limited understanding of how to apply it. And that's by nature because they just, you know, they don't have the bandwidth. I mean, you're writing grants and you're, you know, doing analysis and you're mentoring grad students. Like it's just, it's a very all encompassing sort of thing. I was very fortunate that my PhD advisor really, really put a hard emphasis on actually being able to give practical recommendations. He wanted his students to come out of his lab and be able to talk to the average person about what their research actually meant. I'll never forget when I was going to give my exit seminar, Dr. Lehman, uh, we were having a discussion. I said, well, it was my public defense. And I was like, well, you know, who should I write this for? Because, you know, like there's going to be some you know, lay people there, but there's going to be hardcore research advisors. And he said, I should learn something from your presentation and your mom should learn something from your presentation. And of course, that is the most difficult one to do, right? Because it's just, you know, it's hard to generalize enough that the average person can understand without losing the appropriate nuance. And I really think that set me up to be really good at that over time. And also I did a lot of writing. And so getting back to your original question, I think I just had this like perfect mix where I was training, I was applying these things to myself. And one of the coolest things is my research actually changed some of the ways I ate, you know, which I think is really cool. People have said like, oh, you recommend this. Do you actually do it? I'm like, listen here, I don't recommend anything that I wouldn't do myself, period. You know what I mean? I'm a user who fights for the users. Right, right. But I understand because there's people who don't walk the walk, right? And it, it can come across very strange to the average person. And then also coaching people. That was such an enormous learn. I would say I learned more by coaching people than I did from my PhD in terms of practical application. However, I think doing my PhD allowed me to interpret what I was observing in a much better way than if I had just been coaching people and not had that research background. I think the other thing it did was invariably as a coach, your clients and your staff or whoever, they're going to bring to you, hey, I just saw this documentary. Hey, I just, I just saw this research paper came out. Hey, I just saw this. And if you're not equipped to really like break that down, you know, it can be a gap for you. And so I think what happened with me if I'm distilling down, like, where do I fit and what is my purpose? I really see myself as being a, a bridge between hardcore research and the average person and what it means for them. That's where I truly see myself as filling that gap. And I think, you know, when we talk about researchers, I, I said this on, on Nick Bear's podcast, you know, if you're having somebody go in a race car, 
you know, the person, the engineer who puts together like different components of that car. I mean, they're very, very smart. They understand how it works, but they're not going to be the best person to drive the car. You know what I mean? So it really is. I felt like I had such a great experience by having to go through that process as I was working with real people. Because the other thing you understand is, and this became apparent very quickly to me, there's what's ideal and then there's what's practical, right? Like I can tell somebody, hey, eat this diet. And I'll still remember, I'm like, I can solve the obesity crisis. Yeah, I'll just tell people to do X, Y, Z, right? <laughs> and, and you realize it's like um, I have a friend and he owns a couple of freestanding uh, emergency rooms. He's an emergency medical doctor. And he said, you know, what I wanted was employees and what I got was people. And coaching, I think more than anything, is knowing how to talk to people. It's knowing how to get them to buy in and want to, like, for lack of a better term, make you proud. That's such an important portion of coaching because if it was just X's and O's, I mean, the stuff that works really isn't that complicated. I mean, as much as we'd like to make it to be, it's not. You know, most people, if they've got their head screwed on straight, kind of know what they need to do. But getting them to do that, and I always use financial examples, I'm like, you know, Nobody's going to argue that like if you want to like accumulate wealth that over time that involves spending less money than you earn. Like I don't think there's anybody out there that's going to debate that, right? So why do we have so many people who aren't wealthy? Because I mean even people who make a lot of money end up going broke. Well, it's not a knowledge problem, it's a behavior problem. What you are trying to do is coach people in their behaviors because one of the things I've observed is I think most people, most of the things they do are almost on autopilot, you know, because you have so much things, so many decisions you have to make during the day. A lot of your life almost has to be on autopilot because you just don't have the bandwidth to be able to incorporate that. And so one of the things I really appreciated from my time coaching people was, hey, yeah, there could be this idea of what an ideal diet for this person is, but if they can't stick to it, if it's like too much bandwidth, then like it's just not going to work. You know what I mean? And I think having that perspective of starting there, because I'll have clients that will bring me different stuff all the time. And I'll say, could you do that for the rest of your life? They're like, no. And I'm like, okay, well, then why would you do it for a day? Like, it's just going to, you know, you're just going to end up spinning your wheels at some point. So one of the things, and, and I still want you to just give like a broad 30,000 foot view of your various businesses, but you also work with your wife, which is of course of great interest to us since we've been working together for almost 20 years. So I just, maybe you could tell our listeners just a little bit about the actual nuts and bolts of what the business is and then what's it like to be business partners with your wife and how you guys manage that. I should probably get advice from you guys on this. <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest, and I'm sure it's been the same for you guys. It's not always easy, you know? So first off, my wife is very, very intelligent and one of the hardest working people I've ever met. We have very different personalities, and that can cause some friction. She tends to be, at least in business, have a lot of ideas. She has a lot of great ideas, and I'm kind of like always the devil's advocate. I'm like, Okay, but have you considered this, 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 and this? You know, because I also know we actually just had this discussion today. I'm like, you know, as our companies grow, as these scale, it's like a ship, right? And so if you want to make a quick turn in an 18 foot 
you know, boat, that's not a big deal. But if you're trying to turn an oil tanker, it's a much more involved process, right? Julia, quit looking at me. Give, my wife is giving oh. me the stink eye. Oh. Thanks. You just threw oh, me under the bus. Oh. He's the me. <laughs> I think like one of the things that's really helped us is having um, some people in our businesses, like our director of operations, and then some of our advisors who have become kind of mentors to us and be able to like, I'm not saying we've got to figure it out because we definitely don't, but being able to say, hey, you know, you're really good at this. Let's keep you here. And you're really good at this. Let's keep you here. I also have to remember my wife is seven years younger than me. And I have to remember what I was like, you know, seven, eight years ago. I was doing everything seven, eight years ago. Like I wanted to be involved in all aspects of my business. And now I'm kind of in a place where I go, no, that's Sam's job. Nope, that's Brian's job. Nope, that's not my job. I'm not doing that. You know, not because I'm lazy, but because I know where my time is most valuable. And um, I think that's taken me a lot of mistakes, a lot of time to understand, you know. And it's actually funny because when it comes to our personal stuff, she's much more aware of that. She's like, well, why would you cut your own yard? Let's just hire somebody to do that. Like your time is better spent somewhere else, right? Whereas like I grew up and it was like, well, I just did chores around the house because we didn't have any money, you know? So it's this interesting like dichotomy between the two of us. But I actually think, and our business advisors have said, you know, you guys actually balance each other out really well because if it was one of you, you'd be like running around in circles and, and you know, like spread yourself way too thin. And if it was the other one, you'd still just be coaching people one-on-one because you wouldn't have come up with a bunch of other ideas for these businesses. So I think it's been a nice compliment to each other, even though it does cause some friction. I think that one thing we're still working on is like when we have a disagreement in business, when the clock ends to take off the work hat, put on the personal hat and be like, Hey, love you very much. Everything's fine. You know, like that. Yeah. Let's make dinner. (laughs) Yeah, That can be a little tricky. As far as our businesses go, you know, we really are trying to fill a lot of different gaps where we feel like we can help people. And so that's one thing that's very common between the two of us. Like we, through our own struggles and struggles with clients or working with clients, seeing just how many people struggle with so many different areas in fitness. And so, of course, like we offer one-on-one coaching that we offer through our team BioLane, which is our team of coaches. And we really struggled with that area of the business because it's the most time because you're managing people. And we've actually just gotten, I would say in the last like nine months where things are rolling very smoothly. And a lot of that's just been, you know, through making some key hires and, you know, just taking our hands off and letting people who know what they're doing take over. And that's been a huge deal for us. And so we do offer that one-on-one coaching at kind of a high level. And then we have our nutrition coaching app, Carbon Diet Coach. That has been such a, a massive success. I can't say that I didn't think it would be that successful because I really understood the value of it. And for those that aren't, aren't familiar, people will kind of compare it to my Fitness Pal or these different tracking apps. But really, it's, it's not even in the same category because what our app does is, you know, just like if you went to hire a one-on-one coach, How would that process go? Well, what would happen is they would ask you some questions about your goals. They would get some information about you, your anthropometrics, your dietary preferences, and then they'd formulate a plan. And then you check in with them, you know, usually like once a week, that sort of thing. And that plan would get adjusted or not based on how you're progressing towards your goals. That's exactly what our app does. 
I'll never say it's a complete replacement for one-on-one coaching because I do think, you know, that personal interaction is something that is very helpful in a coaching sense because again, your your coaching behavior. But for people who are a little bit more independent or don't have the budget for a one-on-one coach, because good one-on-one coaching is very expensive, you know, for 10 bucks a month, it's hard to beat what our app does. So we've got that. Then from the workout side, we have our workout builder, which is kind of like our nutrition coaching app, but for workouts, a little bit less of, it's not necessarily an algorithm, but we have these kind of training templates. And the real key thing about ours is we have grouped exercises such that, you know, if you don't have access to a specific exercise or you have a preference, um, you can sub out different exercises but we have grouped them so that it's still going to have a similar effectiveness as long as you're going to the appropriate uh, intensity. And so we, we take care of all that, you know, reps, sets, intensity. We coach all that, and then the person kind of can select their uh, preference for workouts or preference for exercise. So we've got that. We've got our supplement line, Outwork Nutrition, which has been doing really, really well. I've more recently started doing uh, some online courses as well. I have two short course or three short courses. That's a partnership with myself and a company in Australia called Clean Health, and they do a phenomenal job. Uh, and those have been very, very popular. But more recently, I've actually been working on a very long course that will hopefully we're working to get it accredited. That will be uh, specifically targeted at people who do body composition coaching. Oh, fantastic! Because mm. right now, if you think about it, if you're somebody who wants to coach, like online coach. There's personal training certifications, there's nutrition certifications, like you have your precision nutrition, which is a great cert, you have those, but there's nothing that really combines the resistance training with the nutrition in a synergistic manner. And so I actually got together with a professor named Bill Campbell, who's here at USF, who's a phenomenal guy. And we wrote all this coursework out and we're in the process of digitizing it. And so we're gonna be calling that Physique Coaching Academy Oh, I can't wait. That's going to be coming uh, probably late this year or early 2023. And uh, obviously, like, super excited about it. And then we've written books and all that sort of jazz. And we've got ideas for other stuff as well. Oh, the one other thing that I, we just launched as well. See, I have so much stuff, I can't even remember it all. We just launched a monthly research review because I really saw a need for that. With so many people asking me about studies. Hey, what do you think of this study? Hey, what do you think of that study? Yeah. Yeah. So there's a few research reviews out there right now. And the gap we're really trying to fill is a lot of these research reviews, I feel like as a scientist, I get benefit out of them, right? But the average person, I don't know how well they can kind of comprehend it. So what we've tried to do is myself and my co-author, James Longstrom, he's got a master's in exercise science. He actually came from Bill Campbell's lab. Uh, We try to write it with absolutely minimal scientific jargon. And we always try to like, you know, at the end of the article, we will basically say, here's how we recommend practically applying this. Here's what it means for you. And here's how it fits with the overall consensus of the literature. And we'll even say like, hey, we do or we don't think they tested, you know, these things appropriately based on how they designed the study. So we'll actually give like our opinion on the study design And so every month we'll review five studies that are like, we think will be pretty popular in fitness. We do that for our subscribers and that's like $12.99 a month. And so again, like, 
you know, you're getting the benefits of having this kind of like translated for the average person and being educated. So I really see that as a, a great product that I think a lot of people will take advantage of. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's really cool. Crowdsourcing the, uh, yeah, you know, just, we have to. Okay. Well, that is a perfect segue into, um, my next question. Wait, which, wait, first off to okay. say so lazy. So lazy. What are you even doing, Lane? So yeah, lazy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't have much going on. How many so jobs you got? So Kelly and I, in our advanced years being in the health and fitness business for decades at this point, you know, we started off really caring a lot about performance and, you know, working with high level athletes. And that was kind of our teams. focus and teams. And I don't know if it's just because we're both approaching 50 or we've been in the business for a long time, but we really have become like so reasonable. And also I would say pretty critical of our, our industry in that we feel like, okay, we've been doing this for 20 years. And over that 20 year period, you know, people are getting fatter. The rates of diabetes are higher. People are more depressed. They're feeling worse. Like, musculoskeletal like pain mus more surgeries. musculoskeletal pain surgeries. And what we feel like we've done in our industry is we've made ourselves better. We've sort of stayed in this little vertical of like people who would describe themselves as an athlete. Like we've all tracking our sleep and sleeping on a chili pad and taking the right supplements and tracking our macros and doing the right kind of exercise. And we are getting better, but we're like 5% of the population. And we've really like totally left behind the other 95%. And I think part of it, we think at least part of it is it's overcomplicated. People are being firehosed with information. They don't know what to believe. They don't know where to begin. Fitness has um, become entertainment. It's fitness Nutrition has become entertainment. entertainment. Yeah. You know, it, people don't know, they get on, on Instagram and they don't know what's real and what's not real. And that was a really long way ar around of saying, I get the sense that you feel the same way. And that you have made it at least one of your many missions to try to sort of like, you know, eliminate some of the BS in the internetosphere. I'm not sure how else to put it. And in addition to your awesome, you know, straight up educational content, I think you've sort of tried to take a swing at like, what is and isn't accurate information out there and how do consumers parse out, you know, what to actually do and what to apply to their own lives so I just wanted to sort of find out the backstory of like, at one point where you just, you know, scrolling Instagram and you're like, I can't take it anymore. All of the misinformation or I don't know, I just was sort of what was the evolution of you sort of thinking, okay, I actually have the educational background and experience and expertise to be able to speak to some of this and, and you have the platform. So just tell us a little bit about the evolution of, of that for you. So what you just said absolutely rings true. You know, I really enjoyed working as a contest prep coach, which is where I cut my teeth uh, for a long time. I did learn a lot from that and actually quite a few things that I apply even with general population people. But kind of like thinking about, you know, what difference is this really making in terms of like, you know, I've always wanted to kind of like leave the world a better place and I found it. I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm working in this small niche of people who, quite frankly, the vast majority, and I'm sure you guys feel the same way, the vast majority of the athletes and the competitors I worked with, the good ones were going to be successful regardless. I would like to think that maybe I made their path to success a little bit easier and less stressful, right? Oh, it's easy to work with mutants. Yeah, exactly. So what's really difficult is people who don't even know where to start, right? And you said it so well. You know, we're tracking all these things. We're doing all these things. And, and, and I think it's confusing for the average person because the average person doesn't know how to prioritize in terms of like 
they'll get all this information and they have no way of knowing like, hey, which is more important than the other one? Because some of this is like contradicting information. I always try to put it in context of where it fits. So great example of this that just popped into my head was there was a study a while back looking at processed food and uh, whether or not it reduces the post-meal energy expenditure. And the, this study showed that basically processed food uh, had a significantly lower energy expenditure than not minimally processed food. And so people went crazy with this and, you know, whatever. And one of the things I said is like, okay, well, I'm not encouraging the, the consumption of processed food by any means, but like what you've got to be careful of is how you talk about this stuff because if people get this idea that they can never have processed food, well, then what happens is when they actually end up having some because it's impossible, like, or not impossible, but it's very, very difficult not to at least have some or be exposed to some, they end up going crazy whenever they just have a little bit of it and like binge eating. You know, this is a very frequent response that I've seen because it's almost like this black and white all or nothing mentality. So when I broke down the study, I was like, okay, this may be true. Now there's a couple of issues with the study, right? Like, so the protein wasn't equated and the fiber wasn't equated, which is a problem because, um, you know, both those things have effects on thermogenesis, but let's look at what it actually means. Practically. I went in and just did the math on what it meant in terms of your total daily energy expenditure, what it would mean. And it was like about a hundred calories or less, which isn't insignificant, but it's also like, okay, if you can't sustain it, if you can't sustain that style of eating or you want, if you decide you want to have some processed food, like it's okay. You're not going to just like spontaneously get fat from it. Like just make sure that, you know, you're controlling your overall energy intake. Like that's the biggest thing, right? But people don't understand how to create that hierarchy. And that's in the, my book I wrote, Fat Loss Forever. I talk about the Fat Loss Forever Pyramid, which is like, okay, our rock down here, which has to form the basis of everything we do, is adherence. We have to – none of this stuff matters if we can't get you to do it consistently, right? And I'm sure you guys have seen this too, like – even with training or rehab, like if you don't do it consistently, it doesn't matter if you come in and rehab for, you know, 12 hours in a day, it's not going to offset the fact that you only came in three times and did it. Like it's not the way this stuff works. It's what you apply consistently. And I think where, you know, you asked me where, where did this come from? Like, because now I'm kind of known as a guy who just, you know, BS all the time. And <laughs> well, I'll tell people who are like, where do you find this stuff? I'm like, I don't find it. People send it to me because they just know that like, you know, this is what I do. But I really think it started back when I was in graduate school because I would see some of the claims that were made by various people in the fitness industry. And I would be like, I'd had this experience of my own PhD advisor or other graduate students or whatever. Like I'd make a claim and they'd be like, uh, yeah, that's actually BS. And here's why. And they'd, and I'm like, Oh, uh, I guess I can't make that claim. And, uh, I'm a very logical person. Like if you show me the information and it makes sense, I'll just change my mind. I don't get married to my beliefs. That's one of my things I'll say is like, don't marry your beliefs. You should date them. Just don't make that hoe a housewife. Like the divorce is a bitch if you want to get divorced from your beliefs. I just started questioning a lot of these things and I would write, like, I'll never forget like one of the first like sacred cows that I went after was this idea that you should cut water and sodium before a bodybuilding show. And I'm like, this just doesn't make any sense. I'm like, your muscles are 70% water. 
And it's not like you, there's no evidence that you can just selectively target your subcutaneous water without also affecting the water that's inside your cells, you know? So I kind of did these long breakdowns of, of why I thought that this was a really silly thing to do. And it got a whole lot of pushback and I, you know, just would kind of end up, you know, consistently, you know, backing up my claims or my thoughts with logic and data and whatnot. And so people started asking me the other things, you know, well, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? I would give my thoughts just based on the evidence that I saw. And more recently, you guys talked about the article I just wrote about why I don't believe or I don't think that sugar caused the obesity epidemic and the, the research behind that. Yeah. Please tell us a little bit more yeah, about yeah. this. I was literally just going to ask you about that. Yeah. So this all started. So this is a great example of something I actually changed my mind on. Because people were like, oh, you never change your mind on anything. And I'm like, you just haven't followed me long enough if you don't think that. That's right. <laughs> you haven't seen all the little pictures that make yeah. the sailboat. Right. So when I went to University of Illinois, um, I believed that sugar, and especially high fructose corn syrup, was inherently fattening. And what I mean by that is fattening beyond just the energy content, right? So like if you compared high fructose corn syrup to straight up carbohydrate, another source of carbohydrate, it would be fattening compared to that, even if you equated calories. That was my belief at the time. But again, I date my beliefs. I don't marry them. So I was at a grad school mixer like for new grad students. And there was a guy there named uh, Manubu Nakamura. And he was actually one of the people who did some of these original fructose studies where they showed in uh, rodents that overfeeding fructose uh, caused all these weird effects. And actually, I just overheard him talking to another professor, and the other professor was saying basically that he thought high fructose corn syrup was a big cause of the obesity crisis, and Nakamura just responded with, yeah, well, just because it's energy dense and, you know, it's not very satisfying and it's in sugar-sweetened beverages and, you know, people just – it's so easy to, you know, drink a Coke and it's not like if you drink a Coke, you're like, well, that was 40 grams of carbohydrates, so I'm not going to have pasta tonight, right? People don't do that. <laughs> And the, the professor was kind of, the other professor was kind of taken aback and I was kind of taken aback because I'm like, well, this guy was doing the research on it and he thinks it's calories, you know? So I was like, I just kind of was like, okay. So I, I did a little bit of like looking into the research literature. I'm like, huh, yeah, there isn't really any good human evidence to show that this stuff is fattening outside of calories. And I just kind of like put that in the back of my mind and moved on. And then years later, when I was talking more about flexible dieting and people say, well, there's no way you can eat sugar and, and lose weight. And I'm like, okay, here's pictures of me at a bodybuilding show where I'm like shredded beyond belief. And I pretty much had like some ice cream every day because I love ice cream. Hey guys, we just want to take a little break in this podcast episode to actually tell you about one of our own products. And that's our Ready State Virtual Mobility Coach. Yeah, the app literally is the first place you should go if you're trying to feel better, if you're trying to solve an old movement-related problem, if you're just trying to not be as sore from your workout. There is so much going on in this app. We have a mobility test that is comprehensive and designed by Kelly Starrett himself. It's pretty good. So you can figure out what your biggest limitations are and start to work on that. There are sport-specific mobilizations if you want to try to lift more or Fact. run faster. There is a pain area. And we even have a ton of bonus content. You can do challenges around squat and ankle and a bunch of other specific body parts so you can just generally get more supple. Jason, you're and killing awesome. it. You should talk about this app more often. <laughs> 
We started the original mobility project back in 2010, trying to help people solve problems for themselves. We think that every human being should be able to perform basic maintenance on themselves. And we want you to be able to engage in some self-care in a really res reasonable, responsible way. One of our favorite parts of it, daily mobility. You have a 10, 20, or 30-minute follow-along with me. If you just have a ball and a roller, think you want to feel better, move better, play along. I mean, we really feel like that's the base camp practice, then you can add in what you need. We're really proud of this and what we've created here, and we think you should give it a try. Back. Head on over to thereadystate.com slash trial and use code POD20 for 20% off your first month. And just FYI, including your two-week free trial, that's literally six weeks for $11.99. You can't beat that. There's so much amazing content to help you feel better and move better for $11.99. In the words of our uh, podcast producer, bananas. <laughs> You even had a, I think you used an example where you had one of your your clients preparing for a bodybuilding show, ate a Snickers every day. <laughs> they didn't eat anything else. You were like, I wouldn't recommend that. So it's just because it, it sidetracked a lot of things that you could potentially eat, but it wasn't the Snickers. Yeah. So uh, this was, I think, Sohi Lee. So she was a client of mine at the time. I didn't instruct her to eat that, but she wanted to do an experiment. And so, yeah, she ate a Snickers every day. And the funny thing was, and this is the way flexible dieting really should work. And she's like, by the end, I just didn't even want to eat the Snickers because it just wasn't very filling. I would have rather had a big salad. But she ended up, you know, doing really well on her show and she lost, you know, plenty of body fat and whatnot. And so when people started making these claims, I'm like, okay, well, let me really go back through this literature and, and look at it. And again, like just looking through the research literature, it was very clear to me that it just was not fattening independent of calories. Now, I'm not saying it had, it did not contribute to the obesity crisis because again, sugar is a part of hyperpalatable foods that people tend to overeat, but it's not because there's something magically inherent to that food that makes it fattening. It's just people eat too many calories. And so more recently, you've had people like Gary Taubes and Jason Fung coming out and saying, well, it's actually the root cause of obesity is you're eating these processed carbohydrates, which cause your insulin to go up and you cannot lose fat if your insulin's high. And I'm like, uh, is he aware of bodybuilders who use insulin and get really, really lean? Like, I mean, debunked right there, but you know, then they'll always come up with like some kind of, well, they're on steroids. Okay. Well then let's look at all these natural bodybuilders who get really, really freaking lean and they're still eating sugar, you know, not all of them, but quite a few of them. And then you look at the actual like tightly controlled research studies, like the, the classic one I always refer to is the one from Serwit in 1997. They did a six-week study where they fed both groups of people 1,100 calories, but one group was getting like 10 grams of sugar a day and the other one was getting 120, right? So a huge gap in sugar intake. And I'm like, okay. If there's anything to this hypothesis, certainly we're going to see something with that big of a gap, right? And what they found was absolutely no difference in weight loss, fat loss, nothing, because they equated calories and protein and carbohydrates and fats between the two groups. Like, Now, again, people will strawman my argument and say, well, Lane is advocating for sugar consumption. I'm not. I'm just saying that if you want to include a sugary food here and there as part of your diet, it's certainly not going to harm you in your you know, body composition goals as long as you account for it. And so now we have you know, multiple meta-analyses looking uh, you know, across 
you know, dozens and dozens of studies. And it's just, there is not a single study in which this is so rare, by the way, because usually if you hunt enough, you can find a single study that will support what you're saying. I have yet to find a single study where calories are equated and proteins equated and they vary the amount of sugar and it actually makes a difference on body composition. So to me, that's pretty clear. Yeah. But again, you know, these beliefs die hard. And I think a lot of it too is, and I'm seeing the extreme examples of this now on social media, people don't like the idea of personal responsibility. And a lot of the verbiage around the anti-sugar, anti-carb, or any kind of anti-nutrient folks has been, well, obesity is not your fault. It's the fault of these you know, ingredients and food that made you fat or you became addicted to them, which by the way, there's not really evidence for sugar addiction either. And I just have a cookie preference. Thank you. (laughs) So I think what's being lost and the extreme example of this is like people who are like the extreme anti-diet people who say, well, dieting actually doesn't work. And people are just born into certain bodies and, you know, you can't actually change your body. And, you know, I remember being in a debate with one of these people and I'm like, well, what about people like Ethan Suplee who lost 300 pounds and kept it off? Like, how do you explain him? And like the mental gymnastics that have to occur for them to explain this, like, well, he was actually a thin person who just was, who he was actually originally a thin person and, you know, just, and they, they like, they can't explain it, but they go through all these mental gymnastics to try to. And what I'll tell people is, listen, I'm not somebody who thinks that obesity is 100% the fault of the individual. There's like, especially when you look at the research that shows, for example, women who are obese are much more likely to have sexual assault trauma in their background than people, than women who are not obese. And they, when they actually went in and interviewed some of them, they identified whether it was conscious or subconscious that they didn't want to be looked at and they wanted to feel protected and they felt, you know, more protected by being overweight. So again, it's like this is a complicated issue. The the root cause is overconsumption, but the problem is overconsumption isn't necessarily a, a like a conscious decision. And so what I'll always tell people is, listen, and, and this goes for kind of any trauma in your background. What what happened to you may or may not have been your fault, but it doesn't matter whose fault it is, because it is your responsibility to make the change that's required in order to move on from it in order to change things. And there was a really interesting systematic review by a gal in England named Marie Spreckley. And she actually went and like tried to find studies where they identified successful weight loss maintainers. So people who lose weight and keep it off successfully. And most of the stuff I already knew, like the characteristics of a lot of them I already knew. But one that actually really jumped out at me was most of these people said that they felt like they had to form a new identity. And you hear that from people who were alcoholics as well. Like they say, you know, I couldn't hang out at the same places. Some people have to change their job. I had to get new friends, right? Because their whole life had revolved around this lifestyle they had created. And one of the things I'll tell people is, you know, you can't create a new life while dragging your habits, your old habits behind you. You are going to have to become a new person if you want to create a new person. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with Ethan Suplee, but he was an actor who lost over 300 pounds and kept it off. And 
he always posts whenever he'll, he'll every day he'll put up like a picture of him after having worked out and he'll say, I killed my clone today. And I actually messaged him and I asked him, I said, is this what you mean? Like forming a new identity? And he said, that's exactly what I mean. I killed the person I was because that person was not capable of doing what I'm doing now. And uh, I just think people don't think about this stuff enough. And so get, bringing that all back in, I think one of the things we really need to do when it comes to discussing this topic of obesity, which is really um, difficult for some people, is to acknowledge that there are outside factors that affect this. It's not just because somebody came, became obese doesn't mean that they're lazy or that they're a glutton or anything like that. In some cases, that's true, but not necessarily all the time. And so I really think we need to approach this with two things, and that is accountability with empathy. Because if you're only giving the empathy portion, it's like, well, nothing's your fault. And, you know, well, nothing's your fault, then you can't change anything. You know, you don't have power. It makes you powerless. If you truly can't change, then you're powerless. But if it's only accountability and it's like the drill sergeant yelling at you, like every time you screw up, well, people tune that out too, right? So I really think the balance has to be this empathy with accountability. I realize that is a very, very long-winded answer to your question. Oh, no. I mean, it's fascinating. I have to tell you a really, I mean, the other thing I would add, just the point is that, you know, from what I understand, it's like, you know, about the changing your identity. It's all also about the community you're in, right? If you tend to associate with people who don't drink and eat healthy food and exercise, then you're going to not drink and eat healthy food and exercise, right? Or So it's all about some of that changing identity is like, okay, I'm in a community of people who do, do X. And if I want to do Y, I need to join the community of people doing Y because that's going to motivate me. Um, so I, I think that's an interesting way of putting it. I wanted to tell you one story that drove me temporarily insane. I don't know if you have kids. I do. I was at my kid's middle school and there was like this debate about selling soda at the like gym cafe thing. And there were a bunch of parents who were like, no, 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 well, we can't sell like Coke and Pepsi and traditional soda, but we're going to sell Izzy's because Izzy's have just normal sugar and all those other things have high fructose corn syrup. And this was like back in 2013. And I'm like, hey, raising my hand. I'm like, I don't know if I, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert. I don't have a PhD, but I mean, from what I understand, like the moment it passes your lips and is in your body, like your body doesn't really know the difference. And, and so like, what are we even talking about here? And again, I wasn't necessarily advocating for having Coke, but I was like, and you were like, the woman who was after some meets, you're like, your daughter should have a donut, not this Costco muffin. And I was like, okay, <laughs> right. And I did do a lot of posts about the donut be Costco muffin. But you know, I think the message was lost, which was, I was just trying to say, we probably just shouldn't have sugar soda of any kind at the school. Like maybe we're beyond that as a culture. But, you know, I lost out and they sold Izzy's because they had regular sugar in them. So but anyway, I wanted to ask you just about the sugar thing, too. You kind of became known um, for the if it fits into your macros. Right. That's kind of connected to you. And that's sort of part of the whole sugar thing. Right. If you you know, if it fits into your macros and you're going to have a Snickers bar, then then good. That's not necessarily what you'd recommend, though. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. I mean, it's like I always use like a budgetary example. Right. Like you ask anybody cars are a horrible way to spend your money, right? Like cars depreciate in value. They cost money to maintain and they have horrible resale compared to what you paid for a new car, right? But let's take two different examples. If somebody makes $50,000 a year and they want to buy, you know, a really fancy sports car, but it means they can't pay their mortgage or they can't put money away for retirement or they can't pay their utilities. Well, that's a really terrible idea, right? But if somebody makes a million bucks a year and 
They can still meet all their obligations. They can pay their mortgage. They can save some money, all that kind of stuff. And if they say, hey, you know, I just really like cars and I understand it's not a good investment, but I've already taken care of all my obligations over here and this is going to make me feel really good. And also like, it's kind of like that carrot on the end of the stick for me, then I don't really have a problem with that, right? I view food kind of the same way. Hey, if you're a hundred pound woman and your relative, or let's not use that example. If you're a, a smaller woman and you're relatively inactive, but you want to lose body fat, eat pretty low calories and, you know, fitting a slice of cheesecake into your macros is probably not conducive to uh, being able to get enough fiber in, enough protein and feel satiated, right? But if you're somebody who has a very high activity, you have a lot of lean body mass and you can eat, you know, 3000 calories a day and drop weight, which I do know quite a few people out there like that. If you are able to eat enough fiber and meet your micronutrients and uh, your protein and you've got like a bunch of calories left over and you enjoy that sort of food and it, it kind of keeps you like being able to have that as part of your diet actually keeps you more adherent overall because you can be consistent. You don't feel deprived. Then what's wrong with that? To me, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think that's kind of like the, the response I'll always get is, and I got this yesterday on my sugar article. Well, you can't tell me that somebody eating 2,500 calories of Skittles a day is going to have the same health outcome. That's right. And you're like, well, that's not really what I'm saying. As 2,500 calories of beef and, you know, this and that. I'm like, so kids, this is what we call a uh, false dichotomy, also a reductionism. And it is a situation that actually is not going to happen because people just don't eat that way, right? <laughs> like, so... Like this idea that I have to choose one or the other. No, I think we just coined the uh, the the Lane Norton challenge. Eat twenty five hundred calories of Skittles and let me know how it goes for you. <laughs> I'd like to actually see that. Yeah. <laughs> I got a full year of the ready state for anyone who can videotape them eating twenty five hundred calories of Skittles only in one day. You're welcome, Lisa. Lisa's going <laughs> insane. Uh, don't do that. Uh, something you keep coming back to and hearing is really this word adherence, and we. The thing that I looked at and examined in my doctoral work was barriers to adherence. And we just have come more and more that we have to take these good practices and fit them into people's environment and lifestyle. We, that is the first piece. And you said that over and over again. I just want to give you some credit because I've been quoting you recently. You had a post that said, hey, you, this is going to hurt some feelings. So just trigger warning, everyone. You said that you don't just need adherence for like six months. You need adherence for six years decades, like that's the level of adherence you're talking about and consistency, really that piece. I just point at that all the time. I'm like, we are playing this short, short game. Like we're going to win fitness tomorrow or a week from Tuesday on the internet, I ripped off my shirt and I was jacked and I retired from health. Can you talk about just for a second, just make sure I'm getting that clear? Because I think that is such an important point here around reframing everything that you're doing. I think I know the post you're talking about. I was like, you don't need a biohack. You don't need a supplement. You don't need, you know, all these different things. What you need is brutal bone crushing consistency. That's what you need. Yeah. Like soul sucking <laughs> consistency. And when I say that, it doesn't mean like no days off or anything like that. That's not what it means. It means, yeah, there are some little things you can do that might make a difference. But I always use this example. Kelly, if, if I said to you, I want you to become the best three-point shooter you possibly can be, but you can get absolutely no coaching. You can just go and practice yourself. But if you went out and for four hours 
or for, let's say for two hours every single day for 10 years, all you did was shoot three pointers. You're not going to go to the NBA, but I bet you'd be pretty damn good at three pointers. You know what I mean? And you'd be certainly a hell of a lot better than you are right now. And so I do that to highlight the fact that consistency is powerful. It is so powerful. You know, people ask me all the time, Lane, how do these bodies, some of these bodybuilders get so jacked when like, look at the way they train. I'm like, cause they train really freaking hard and they do it every day. And you know what? Like I see a lot of people who like try to like science their way out of hard training. And I'm like, you know what? The one thing I've, I've noticed with people who are pretty successful, even though they may not do everything perfect, they go pretty hard. You know what I mean? If you've been around professional athletes, with few exceptions, they are some of the hardest working people there are. And so hard work and consistency can offset a lot of doing things wrong. And quite frankly, when you just look around at people who have had success with all different kinds of methodologies, like, I mean, when people say, oh, you can't get lean eating carbs, I'm like, how many examples of people do you need who get really lean eating carbs before you go, okay, that can't be true? Or people say, <laughs> you can't get jacked being a vegan. I'm like, how many examples of jacked vegans do you need before you go, okay, that's not true, right? Like, there's so many roads to Rome, and we can argue over, you know, what the, and this is what professionals do. We tend to argue in the margins of that, like two, 3%, but that's not really helpful for the average person. Unfortunately, that arguing in the margins is what is sexy and what people like to listen to because it's interesting. But I mean, when it comes to like actually making a difference, that's not the stuff that makes a real difference. The stuff that makes a real difference is consistency. I, I've followed a guy named um, Dave Ramsey in the finance sector for a long time because I don't agree with everything he says, but I think a lot of what he says makes a lot of sense. And and he has something uh, when he's trying to – he's big on getting people out of debt. One of the things that they do is what's called a debt snowball. By the way, I promise I'm going somewhere with this. So he'll tell people if you have a bunch of different credit card debt and all the sorts, pay off the smallest one first. Then whatever you were paying on that one, you know, now that it's paid off, throw it you know, at the next one, pay minimum payments on everything else and just, you know, knock them off one by one. And people all the time will criticize them and say, well, that makes no sense. You should pay off the one with the, the highest interest rate first. And he goes, yeah, that would make sense if we were doing math. But if we were doing math, we wouldn't be in debt in the first place now, would we? Because this is a behavior issue. This is not a math issue. And I think people could learn a lot from that in fitness as well, because they'll, again, They'll get really hung up on, well, what ratio of omega-6 to omega-3? And I'm like, yeah, maybe it makes a difference, but like you're not even being consistent. Like, why are you worried about this thing? You like you're consistent during the week, and then on the weekend you go and you like have, you know, 15 alcoholic drinks and then eat, you know, a bunch of burritos, and you're wondering why you're not making progress. Do you think it's because of the carbs in the burrito, or do you think it's the fact that like you're just eating a crap load and not being consistent. And that's the other thing I'll say. I'm like, people say, well, this thing didn't work for me. I'm like, did it not work for you? Or did you try everything? Or did you just like not really do it? Get frustrated and give up. Right. And so I've yet to meet very many people who have been really brutally consistent who don't see success, didn't get some pretty good results. And, yeah. and what I'll tell people is like, you have to understand, like, 
you know, success looks different. Like you have to have a, you might have a picture in your mind of what you want in terms of your body. And that may just not be possible based on your genetics. But if you're really consistent, you know, I promise you, you'll be better than you thought you were. I always use the example of um, like, I had really skinny legs growing up, like really skinny legs. I ran cross country in high school. And even after like three years of hard training and bodybuilding, like I, I trained hard, my legs still sucked. And everybody on the bodybuilding message boards would make fun of me when I posted like, do you even train legs? It was actually really hurtful because I did train legs really hard. And, you know, when, when somebody has a big upper body and skinny legs, that's like, oh, you're lazy. You know, you just use the, you just do the T-shirt muscles, you know. And I remember getting so frustrated and I just said to myself, you know what? Maybe I'll never have a good uh, set of legs, but I'm going to go hard for 10 years and be really consistent for 10 years. And if after 10 years I don't have a decent set of legs, then I'll allow myself to quit bodybuilding. And, you know, this funny thing happened after 10 years – it was about the time I was getting ready for my first pro show. I was um, doing some posing practice for one of the judges of the organization to get some feedback. And I just gotten so used to saying that my legs were a weak point. I said, you know, I know my legs are a weak point. And so I do this thing. And, and she looked at me and she goes, your legs aren't a weak point. You know, I mean, they're not going to be the best ones on stage, but they're not a weak point. They're balanced with the rest of you. And I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then um, I'll never forget at IPF World. So this is 15 years after I made that kind of pact with myself. So IPF World 2015, I set a world squat record. I squatted 668 pounds raw in the 205 pound class. And my coach at the time, his name was Ben Escrow. It's a funny story. I actually coached him for bodybuilding when he was young. And then he ended up coaching me for powerlifting years later. Love it. Hmm, that's cool. After the meet, I came back from my drug testing and he's sitting on like this milk or some kind of crate in the warm-up area. He's got his head in his hands and he's not an emotional guy and he's crying. And I'm like, Ben, dude, we did it. He just looks at, can I curse by the way? Knock yourself right out. Yes. All right, all right. He looks at me and goes, what are you upset about, man? We did it. We did it. He looks at me and goes, how the fuck did you do that? I'm like, what do you mean? We trained for this. He goes, you were the kid with skinny legs that everyone made fun of, and you just set a world record in the biggest powerlifting organization on the planet <laughs> at the biggest meet they have. He's like, how the fuck did you do that? And I'm like, just trained really hard for 17 years. I guess is the answer. Bone yeah, yeah. crushing. Bone crushing consistency. consistency. Okay, so we have gone, I love that story, by the way. BCC. We have totally gone over time, but this is a rare event in our podcast history where our own staff has submitted some specific questions, which I feel compelled to ask you before we let you go. So maybe they speed can round. be sort of speed round. Yeah, okay, I'll do my best. But the first one is about high cholesterol, which I think a lot of people have. You know, people get a high cholesterol number and then, We're have to you know, their, back. their doctors say become a vegan and um, don't ever eat meat again. So what's the research say? What's your advice? By the Baby, way, you uh, just you were like shoulder pain. Go. Well, I know. But back I mean, pain, go. OK, I realize that's not a simple question. But, you know, I think people are either told become a vegan or eliminate all processed foods or don't ever eat bread again. I really think nobody knows what to do um, if they are actually determined to lower their cholesterol. I wouldn't worry so much about total cholesterol. The research on total cholesterol is, seems to suggest it doesn't matter that much. But LDL's uh, cholesterol specifically is most certainly an independent risk factor for heart disease. Or I want to say most certainly. There is very convincing evidence to me that it is an independent risk factor for heart disease. So I would target you know, trying to lower LDL cholesterol. 
And there are people out there who will say, well, it's not LDL. It's more about the ratio of HDL to LDL. Listen, they have made drugs that raise HDL. They don't reduce the risk of heart disease. HDL is just an indicator of metabolic health. So if you have high HDL, it's good because it indicates that you're metabolically healthy. But you still want to have low LDL. Even There's even uh, Mendelian randomization trials showing that going from like a low-ish LDL of like 90 to even lower, continuously even further lowers your risk of heart disease. Now, how to reduce LDL, I will say part of this is genetics. I am somebody who I actually have slight familial hypercholesterolemia. So I actually take a mild statin because even with doing these different dietary interventions, my LDL is still around 150. So, uh, but what you can do is one, you can reduce your saturated fat. So saturated fat does raise LDL cholesterol. The other thing people say is, well, it's not LDL, it's uh, apolipoprotein B. That's actually true, but it practically doesn't matter because ApoB and LDL are like this. They go right together. So you can lower your saturated fat. That will help. Recommendation-wise, you know, the recommendation is like try to keep it below 10% of your total calories. If you are somebody who runs pretty high LDL, maybe below 7% of your total calories, um, as low as you reasonably can. Then the other thing you can do is increase your fiber intake because fiber can bind to cholesterol and has been shown to lower LDL cholesterol. And it's just a good idea to eat a lot of fiber anyway because, I mean, we but have- fibers and fruits and vegetables, and those are dangerous. Oh, God. Yeah. Never thought <laughs> of all the, the things that I thought people would say are bad for you. I mean, the fact that now we have people who think vegetables are bad for you is pretty intense. Yeah, that is intense. We've got, I mean, multiple. And again- Fiber, fiber, fiber. You look at the research on meat, it's kind of all over the place. Like some studies show it's, you know, it increases the risk of cancer and heart disease. Other studies don't show that. You look at the research on fiber and fruits and vegetables. There's literally no disagreement in the human research data. It is- more people eat fruits and vegetables and fiber, the less risk of disease they have. In fact, there was a couple of meta-analyses that looked at the risk of cardiovascular disease, cancer, and all-cause mortality risk. And they basically found, they did a regression analysis, which is basically a dose-response analysis, and found that for every 10-gram increase in fiber in the diet, there was a corresponding 10% decrease in the risk of mortality. So, I mean... Well, just... 10 grams, 10%. Oh my God. Holy. Okay. If you want longevity hack, fiber is like a longevity hack. Okay. <laughs> so you can raise your fiber intake. What do I recommend? If you can get about four, you know, I don't like to always say more is better because I feel like there's always going to be outcomes where that's not true, but you know, about 15 grams per thousand calories of dietary intake, not because more isn't better, but because it's just hard to get much more fiber than that at those levels of calories. But definitely for most people trying to get at least 20 grams a day, but the average American gets about six grams of fiber a day, which is just gross in terms of like what that's doing for your health. So those two things, but as far as the meat thing goes, because you guys asked about becoming vegan, you could go vegan and still not have a good effect on your LDL cholesterol if you're if we're talking about vegan, you know, plant-based where you're eating a lot of whole food 
you know, plant-based stuff, yeah, it's probably going to help your LDL cholesterol quite a bit because you're eating a lot of fiber and a lot of fruits and vegetables. But you could also do vegan where it's like, hey, I'm having vegan mac and cheese and, and vegan, you know, chicken wings or whatever. Like, that's not going to help you. And by the same token, you know, it's like like the ketogenic diet. Like there's a, a good way to do keto and a, and a bad way to do keto, you know, where keto where you're doing, okay, I'm doing a lot of vegetables, and I, you know, fish and, you know, salmon. And, and there's also a wrong way to do it where you're just eating slabs of bacon and putting butter on everything. Like that's not a good – or you're buying – keto ice cream that actually has more calories than regular ice cream, which is insane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, that's awesome. Okay. So rapid fire number two, what are your thoughts on like impossible burger beyond burgers? I mean, I think a lot of people just have a, a pushback against this. I, I've seen like the, the images, like they list the ingredients of the impossible burger and then they list the ingredients of beef and it's like beef. And then everybody like, you know, jumps on the, the bandwagon. Yeah. Okay. But that's like, they're literally picking out every different chemical and, and ingredient in the impossible burger. Well, if I went through and like broke down every chemical that's actually in beef, I could make it look scary too. You know what I mean? Um, so, I mean, I think that's one of those things that if you are somebody who's chosen to be plant-based or you've chosen to be vegan, I think it's a perfectly fine option if you want. If you want to get the taste of beef and those sorts of things, if you don't want to consume it, then don't consume it. I wouldn't say either one is healthier than the other. It just depends on the context. I mean, if you're talking about like lean beef versus a fatty vegan burger, I'd say that the lean beef is probably, you know, this is going to lack context, but better for you in terms of a body composition standpoint. Uh, but by the same token, if we're talking about, you know, 75, 25 beef that has a whole lot of saturated fat, well, then maybe the other one's better for you. It's completely contextually dependent. I just feel like people have these disingenuous arguments where they, you know, appeal to naturalism. And like the fact of the matter is like these naturalistic arguments just don't have a lot of weight because – I don't know if anybody's really noticed, but we're not living in like 5000 BC anymore. And so if we can just we should really assess each food and each um, component of food based on the data about whether or not it is safe and healthy and, and stop having these silly arguments about naturalism. Awesome. Lane, we follow you. Can you tell the people where we can find they can find you on social and go down the rabbit hole of all Norton family power business? Sure. So uh, you can find me on uh, social media pretty much everywhere is BioLane. And then my website is BioLane.com. And that's kind of the hub for everything we do. And you can find most of this. You can find our workout builder and you can find our courses and you can find our reps, our research review on BioLane.com. Uh, you can find Carbon Diet Coach on iOS and Android. And you can find our supplement line on OutworkNutrition.com. And then also probably be good to give my wife a follow at Holly T. Baxter. She puts out some great information as well. And she's way better to look at than I am. Heck yeah. Hey, Lane, thank, thank you, you so much so for being much. on the race. We really appreciate you. Hey, thank you guys for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time, cheers, everyone. 
You've got it. You better stop.